Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door and let's chat about art, architecture, history, real estate, and of course, food. Let's jump in. It's always fascinated me that every night we all lay down around the world, whatever our circumstances, whatever the environment, and we go to sleep. To sleep is to be human. We've created rituals around sleep, those that help us to fall asleep, and those that protect us as we lay vulnerably unaware. For some of us, sleep is our nemesis, an elusive diva of dormancy. And sometimes it can be a nightly battle to succumb to sweet rest. We are excited to speak today with an esteemed sleep expert, Dr. Diana McMillan of the University of Manitoba, as we fall deeply into the topic of sleep. Whether you consider yourself to be a good sleeper or a poor sleeper, sleeping is something we all do. It's a part of every day and crucial for the body to rest and repair. While we all know those people who can fall asleep at the drop of a hat, sometimes in mid-conversation. For others, sleep can be a struggle at the best of times in the comfort of our own home, let alone when traveling or sleeping in unfamiliar beds in foreign locations. I'll admit, I'm not the best sleeper even when I'm at home, so when I travel, it isn't surprising that I encounter issues. A lot of people who know us are aware that I'm the night owl and you're the early bird. Mm -hmm. So what's your sleep like? I'm also a terrible sleeper. I'm able to fall asleep really well, probably because I get up so early in the morning. But when I do sleep, it's very short and it's very light. And in fact, a couple of years ago, I started tracking my sleep patterns on my Fitbit, which is amazing. And I've found a lot of insights. Mm. But what it has told me is that I have a very active nightlife Although not the fun kind of nightlife. I'm actually just <laughs> up and about constantly waking up all night long. Oh, that's not good. No. Um, I stay up late, I admit, and I have troubles putting my phone away. And then when I eventually can get my phone away, I have troubles putting my book away. Right. Also, in terms of other issues I have, I have issues with pillow support. So if I'm finding the right pillow, it's a constant quest for me. I find the right one and then it doesn't seem to do the trick. So then I'm, you know, I'm looking for another one right mm-hmm. away. Yeah. Pillows are a really big deal. Mm. I'm actually reminded of those. um, Have you ever heard of those headrests that they had in ancient China that were really hard? Yeah. Like they were made out of ceramic or bamboo. It's like a log. Yeah. Mm. Or even sometimes bronze. So no give, no Mm -hmm. comfy pillow like like we have today, but maybe they were better for our necks. Maybe. Well, my opus form wasn't too far off the mark, but maybe I should give a brick a try next. Good idea. (laughs) What about when traveling? (laughs) Do you have issues getting your Z's when you travel? I actually don't sleep when I'm en route somewhere, when I'm actually actively traveling. Mm. I might doze off on a really long journey, but I always get shocked awake when my head starts bobbing around like a bobblehead <laughs> or when my mouth is gaping open, you know, catching flies. It's really embarrassing. And it's just uncomfortable. I'm okay with jet lag, usually when I'm traveling east, mm-hmm. but often it seems to take a few days to hit my stride when I'm coming back home. Right. Well, 
I never seem to sleep on the plane either. I'm typically very excited or I'm going through lists of things in my head. You know, did I lock up? Did I remember to do this? Did I bring that? Or Mm -hmm. I'm mentally trying to get my ducks in a row for when we land. And I'm not a good flyer. I'm a nervous flyer. Right. So if there's any turbulence, I tend to be white knuckling it all the way to my destination. Yeah. And that really gets in the way of sleep. It does. I rarely sleep on planes either, though a few times... It's kind of funny. I've dozed off right before landing. So I'm asleep and then the plane hits the tarmac and I'm jolted (laughs) awake thinking that we've hit some major turbulence. Right. And my go-to when we hit turbulence is always to like shout, it's okay, it's okay. (laughs) I don't know who I'm calming down. Like other people, my kids, myself. Anyway, my kids, are they think it's hysterical. They're like, oh my God, you are such a loser. The plane is on the ground already. Yeah. That's funny. That's the equivalent to me on a train. The train is completely relaxing for me. I find the rocking back and forth very calming. It lulls me to sleep. And it's pretty funny. On the train, I'm one of those people that falls asleep into this deep sleep where you sometimes startle yourself and you let out a yell it's like ah! <laughs> and you don't realize that you were sleeping and then everybody looks at you it's so embarrassing oh my god yeah that's embarrassing that's worse than my story what were you dreaming about I don't know I've d- I, I, it happened on a massage table once too I get very relaxed when I do finally fall asleep <laughs> I think that's so funny. I don't think I've ever yelled out in, in my sleep anywhere, even in my own bed. I have been on a sleeper car on a train, though, which was super comfy and relaxing. Oh, so but nice. otherwise, I just can't fall asleep sitting up. It just doesn't work for me. So do you ever take any medication to help you sleep, you know, on these long haul flights or to ease your nerves? I used to be a bit of a panicky flyer too and uh, considered it but then I realized that if something went really sideways on an airplane I'd rather have my wits about me than be kind of zoned out in the back of the aircraft but my husband has really serious flight anxiety and he does take medication so he's asleep before we even take off and it's actually a little bit annoying because I'm sitting there (laughs) usually with three kids and he's snoring away if we ever got into an emergency, I'd have to like push him out down the <laughs> down the inflatable slide. Well, last time I went to England, I took some gravel before we took off and I thought it was going to make me sleepy. It actually made me super nervous and wired. Yeah. And I ended up being up for about 40 hours before I ultimately got, got some sleep. Yeah, it can go both ways when you take uh, medication like that. I never recommend giving kids gravel in the hopes that it'll make them sleep because if it does go squirrely and has the opposite effect that's a special kind of travel nightmare oh god yes so true well hopefully by the end of today's episode we'll be able to gather some tips for us to help us sleep better at home and abroad a nice plug for the show walker you see how i did that yeah very smooth (laughs) very smooth Well, inevitably, we all encounter sleep problems when we travel, whether it's sleeping on our way to our destination, dealing with jet lag, or having a good quality sleep when we finally arrive. Yeah, I imagine some people, many people, have issues falling asleep in a new environment. Actually, they do. A 2016 study published by Dr. Masako Tamaki, an assistant professor in the Department of Cognitive, Linguistic, and Psychological Sciences at Brown University, discussed the first night effect, or FNE, and this refers to the difficulty humans have falling asleep in a new place, which results in shorter sleep times and shorter REM sleep time, which is the time we spend dreaming. Hmm. 
The research indicates that people sleeping in a new place experience increased activity in the left hemisphere of the brain. So this hemisphere stays more active and remains slightly alert as our bodies monitor the environment, even when we're sleeping. And I guess we're looking for some kind of potential danger. So we wake up to unexpected sounds when we're sleeping in a new location. It might be a throwback to our more primitive days. High alert. Exactly. It's also interesting to note that research showed that this brain activity starts to level off after that initial first night. So Dr. Tamaki says exactly that. It dates back to ancient times when you might need to not be completely asleep so you can sense danger. Dr. Tamaki also says we can avoid these possible sleep issues by trying to arrive a couple of days ahead of an important event so you can be on your toes. If this isn't possible, then Dr. Tamaki suggests that we spend as much time as we can in the hotel room to ensure a level of comfort and security so we can more easily have a good quality sleep. And we can also bring some items from home to create a feeling of comfort. What would you bring? That's easy. I would bring lavender hand cream because I love everything aromatherapy and Mm -hmm. especially lavender because it's very calming and I would likely bring a book that I had been reading at home already before I left for my trip so it would sort of transition from home to you know being abroad yeah absolutely so other than the first night experience left hemisphere issues what are the types of things that cause problems for people when they travel I think the overall change of environment can create obstacles for good night's sleep. People really like to have that predictability in order to feel safe enough to go to sleep. So a new city or an unfamiliar language can really disrupt that sense of security. And I think the actual features of one's room can have a major impact too. Take, for example, the bed. If it's an uncomfy mattress or the pillows look all lumpy bumpy or you know there's a hair in your sheets... That can be oh. a real downer. I know, super <laughs> gross, dusty right? Dusty day covers. That's what we call that what? blanket at the end of your bed. The dusty day covers. Oh. <laughs> pull those off immediately. <laughs> oh, that's a new one to me. That's a new one to me. Yeah, I seldom have issues with the mattress itself, but I have to say that it weighs heavily on me, the idea or the worry about bed bugs. Oh, so, me too. of course, immediately when I get to my accommodations... I pull back the sheets and I look for evidence of uh, bed bugs. Yuck. Yeah, I think it's super gross too. And I don't think you're crazy because I do the same thing. I think my kids think I'm crazy because I make them stand out in the hallway while I check everything. And they now they're traumatized to the point where they always say, Mom, are there bed bugs? Before they can even, you know, put their bag (laughs) in their room. But it's a real pain in the butt. If you carry one of those little suckers home. Yeah, no, you don't want that. No, no, nobody wants that kind of souvenir. So when in Japan, speaking of mattresses, Mm -hmm. we slept on tatami, which is the traditional way of sleeping in Japan. And tatami mats are very thin, soft mats that are used for flooring in Japanese households. We also had these little thin mattresses called shiki futons, which you would have individually and you would unroll it on the floor every night to go to sleep. And there's all sorts of health benefits, apparently, like good posture. Or it's really good for your back. But I always woke up super creaky and stiff. I'd have troubles getting back up I imagine once I got down yeah it was honestly it was really hard after a night's sleep so I don't know why it didn't jive with me maybe just because I Mm. wasn't used to it or my age or whatever I did read though that if people are concerned about the mattress not being comfortable 
there are some things that travel experts suggest to help. And that's requesting a newly renovated room because it probably is more likely to have a newer mattress and maybe less of a chance of bed bugs too. That makes sense. Something to think about. But more than the mattress, I think that the room temperature is probably more of a problem for me. People who know me know that I have a really wonky personal climate control problem. So I'm always operating at a hellish inferno temperature (laughs) level most of the time. So even at night, I think that most rooms are too hot. Right. Well, I have the opposite problem. I am always too cold when I go into a hotel room. So I am the person who immediately turns the temperature up and I throw on a sweater. And it's surprising, actually, now that I think about it, that we travel together and quite happily, if I might add, because of the difference in how we like our rooms. Maybe I'm warming up the room for you with my (laughs) own, maybe, yes, spontaneous human combustion (laughs) happening over here. That's it. Yeah, we always have a good time when we travel together. People also, though, complain about light and noise levels interrupting their sleep when traveling. I was recently staying in Paris on the Rue du Temple, and it has a really healthy nightlife close by. And our bedroom fronted on the street, so there were party goers whooping it up until about 3 a.m. And then when they got finally to their destination, it was the garbage bin collectors who followed suit until about 6 a.m. So our sleep was was not great. And I imagine too, you know, in some of these older buildings, the thin walls Mm -hmm. allowing noise to travel from room to room or from the hallways could be really disturbing. Yeah, well, I would not have done well in that hotel room. I'm very sound sensitive. Mm -hmm. The last time I traveled, I could hear the conversation that was happening in the hotel room above my room. Every time they walked across the floor, I not only heard it, I could actually feel it. Now, I suspect that they might have indulged in a few libations before they headed back. So they might have been louder than the typical people. But I'm not good with sound like that. Right, right. I imagine we've all had to deal with noise at some point, whether it's noisy hotel guests or, you know, your Airbnb is right next to a dance club. Poorly insulated walls, that sort of thing. I think you're right. Yeah. I think much of the frustration caused by noise can be avoided, though, with proper research done in advance of the trip. Like if you're going to rent an Airbnb like I did in Paris, look at Google Maps, you know, check out the neighborhood. I would have known then that it was going to be pretty uh, noisy at night. Or is your accommodation near a train station? Is there a lot of coming and going? Look over the reviews online of the hotels. Do people complain about noise or do they complain about noise in a specific area in that building? And you can also, when you're making your reservations, request a room that has a quieter exposure that's not overlooking the entertainment stage, for example, at your, your resort in the Caribbean. And you can even make a special request for a higher floor away from areas that are noisy, such as elevators and lobbies. All of this just to help minimize the potential of noise interruptions at night. Right. Well, I have done this, particularly I like to stay away from pools. Right. So that's, yeah, they are I, noisy. I, I, do, I don't want my room facing onto a pool. So I've done that. But that primarily came about after an experience I had a few years ago when I was spending New Year's Eve at a hotel and I showed up and our hotel room was looking over the HVAC system for the restaurant. 
And I can tell you, it was a major problem I had to deal with. I'll never put myself in that situation again, where I went into the New Year's with my ears plugging and unplugging all night long. Oh, that's It was awful. a terrible, terrible experience. Now, trying to find your room and its proximity to the HVAC system is a little trickier, but I think a lot of issues can be avoided. Yeah. And you know what? You can just expressly ask mm. when you're making your reservation. If all else fails, though, I guess you could have a little portable white noise machine. Maybe the, the hotel has one and bring earplugs. Oh, I love my earplugs. I also bring an eye mask when I travel. And I would love to bring my own pillow too, considering the issues that I have. But, you know, I'm trying to go more light when I travel. Yeah. So it's bulky. But I've seen people do this. Yeah, I've seen people bring their pillows on onto airplanes. You know, and of course, everybody has those little horseshoe-shaped flight pillows that, frankly, suck. <laughs> I don't even know why they make them. My head still does the bob and weave, it's and true. I don't know. They just don't make any sense. There's something magical about the pillow, though, isn't it? Finding the right pillow. Mm -hmm. Hotels are really up in their ante, I hear, when it comes to the sleep experience, and pillows seem to be the star of the show. Yeah. I remember a few years ago, I stayed at a hotel, and they had these little tiny bottles of lavender-scented spray to mist your pillow with before you went to sleep. It was lovely. I love that. I love everything lavender when it comes to going to sleep. I also read that the Benjamin Hotel in New York City offers a rest and renew program, which is headed by sleep expert Dr. Rebecca Robbins, who is a sleep researcher at uh, the Harvard Medical School. Mm. And this hotel offers, okay, just sit down, Walker, sit down. You're going to get excited. <laughs> Am I going to be making a reservation? You're going to be making a reservation <laughs> for sure. They have, first of all, a top 10 curated pillow menu. So you got to, I don't think a brick is on it, but I'm sure there's one there for you. I wonder if they have a hotel store where I can buy the pillow and bring it home. That would be nice. Maybe if you find the right yeah, one. Yeah, I find the right one. They have on-demand meditation. They have sleep masks, earplugs, blackout curtains, noise machines, and a lullaby music library. So all of those little bells and whistles. Plus they have a 24-7 sleep team. Just in case you're not getting your Z's, they're going to rush in and figure you out. <laughs> That's what I need. I need that a sleep is hysterical. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> to rip my book right out of my hand so I can go to sleep at night. Right? <laughs> Take your phone away. And they have a whole other host of sleep related services, and they also recommend certain sleep apps. So I don't know about you, but that sounds totally heavenly to me. <laughs> and I would stay there just to experience that program. But I'm really happy to say we don't need to travel too far to learn more about what constitutes a good night's sleep because we are so pleased and fortunate to have our own special guest, sleep expert, Dr. Diana McMillan with us today. Dr. McMillan is an associate professor at the Rady Faculty of Health Sciences, Faculty of Nursing at the University of Manitoba, and the clinical chair of the Health Sciences Center in Winnipeg. Welcome to At Home and Abroad, Dr. McMillan. We are so grateful to have the opportunity to talk with you today. Well, I'm pleased to be to be here with you. So one of the first things I discovered uh, when I was reading about you and your work was your Twitter profile. It describes you, or you describe yourself, I should say, as a good sleeper. I think many of our listeners, me included, would like to be able to describe ourselves as such. So what habits do you have or recommend that would really encourage good sleep? 
Okay. Well, um, actually, I, I do actually feel that I am a pretty good sleeper. Although I, as a mom of uh, four daughters and uh, grandmother now, um, and, you know, I've had my own fair share of experiences that may have been stressful or, or very sad or distressing or whatever. So I have a great empathy for people who are not sleeping very well as, uh, as well. Um, but on the whole, I, I really am a pretty good sleeper. And there's probably some things, uh, factors that contribute to that. One is I try very hard to build exercise into my um, daily or at least weekly routine several times a week. And that can be something as simple as going for a walk, which I did this morning, or it might be going for a bicycle ride or gardening or, you know, just getting out in the fresh air um, and trying to get some uh, natural um, daylight. So even though today was overcast here in Winnipeg, um, there's still a bit of, you know, day sunshine sort of, um, you know, kind of uh, filtering through those clouds. And so that's a really helpful way to sort of entrain a circadian rhythm. Right. The other thing mm -hmm. is that um, I do try to uh, have sort of some downtime in the evening. Um, so stepping away from maybe some work that I need to, to finish up or whatever, or, you know, really try to do something that I find enjoyable uh, near to bedtime. So reading or um, just relaxing, doing, doing a Sudoku puzzle or something like that, you know, um, and that's a really great way to transition into uh, a nighttime sleep time and the other thing is is I basically keep to the same wake time and bedtime and that's really key it really helps to sort of entrain a very regular rhythm and I do have an alarm clock but I always wake up beforehand because I have you know I just try to make a sleep a priority so I do try to get my sleep but I I just have a really strong rhythm that allows me to wake up, you know, usually a few minutes before my alarm clock would have ever gone off. Okay. Uh, and so I usually wake up feeling good. <laughs> well, oh my gosh. And so many people I'm sure listening are are envious of that fact. So what about sleeping in? You don't actually recommend that you change your hours on the weekend. You keep a very regular pattern to your sleep. I, I I do actually. And and so, you know, maybe if there was something, you know, certainly if you're ever ill or if injured or something like that, you do need more rest. I try to get my seven to, you know, eight and a half hours of good quality sleep on a regular basis. Now, I'm not going to get too upset if I have a, a great event to attend or something like this and I stay up a little later. But uh, on a regular basis, I, I really try to make sure that I get the rest I need. And it really makes me feel good. Like I feel alert during the day and I feel more cheerful. And um, we know that it's associated with improved mood, coping, problem solving, you know, um, all decision making, of all of these. Like there's a whole host of things and you're not as clumsy either. <laughs> Well, so. yeah, I have noticed that about myself, that if I haven't had a good sleep the night before, I am more prone to dropping things, making mistakes, you know, just not being as attentive. It actually makes me think of we just recently experienced daylight savings time. And so that has, you know, always does a number on our sleep. And I would imagine that when we're traveling, 
especially long distances by air, that this would have a, a pretty serious impact on the quality of our sleep. So could you tell us a little bit about what that is, that that phenomenon of jet lag and what the best way to manage that or sort of preempt those those issues would be? Interestingly, I just experienced some jet lag having come back uh, from overseas. I was presenting some research at, in, in Spain, actually. Oh, wow. Um, and um, so what we find, what research is, is supporting is that it takes about a day for every hour that you change. Oh, so, I didn't know that. So if you are flying great distances, you're going to you need several days perhaps to really get back into your regular circadian rhythm. Okay. And so you need to be aware that you may be less alert, um, that you're, you know, maybe more uh, likely to not process information, say if you're driving mm. <laughs> or, or as a, even as a pedestrian, you know, sort of right. take a little extra time to double check before you cross the street. Um, we also see that this whole shift in um, whether it's a, an hour and this in this fall change, we we sort of fell back. So we were supposedly gained an hour. Um, but interestingly, a lot of people don't gain that hour. They stay up a little later because, you know, clocks are, are, are falling back and they, so they're, they're maybe staying up later, but their body is still telling them to wake up at the old time. Mm-hmm. And so they, they may not actually be getting all of the sleep that they need. Others are able to sleep in and, and, and you know, benefit from that. The spring move towards daylight saving is actually much harder because we're going against our normal circadian rhythm. Now, there's a very curious fact, actually, uh, that we've discovered, and that is our circadian rhythm is closer to 25 hours, not 24. So if you've ever traveled west or if you if, you know, staying up is much easier than actually getting up an hour earlier or moving, say, visiting relatives on the East Coast. Right, right. right. And that makes a lot of sense, given that our normal circadian rhythm is a little bit longer than 24 hours. And in fact, actually done some work with individuals who are blind, and there's certainly research to support that, is that they can run into a lot of problems by drifting forward. And so they have a lot of challenges to try to keep to this 24-hour rhythm. And so what we do as, you know, as, as human beings, we reset or reestablish our circadian rhythm at 24 hours every day through our, our meals, our work, mm-hmm. our playtime and, and, um, you know, wake and, and uh, bedtime schedules. Mm-hmm. But if, if we're not as engaged in, in our community, for example, or we don't have this regular routine, we, we may tend to drift forward. So it does explain some challenges, perhaps if you're in a long-term care facility and not as engaged or at your home by yourself and fairly isolated, you know, good reasons to get up, keep to a routine and get out and get some fresh air and some sunshine. Mm. Yeah. Well, it seems Dr. McMillan that sleep is taking center stage these days in conversations about health and wellness. Um, it seems to be everywhere in the newspapers, online. Does sleep have an impact on overall health and wellness? It absolutely does, Lauren. So um, mm-hmm. not only do we feel fatigued if we're not getting the adequate uh, quantity of sleep, right. but we also need the right quality of sleep on a regular okay. basis, right? And so we, we're not only fatigued, but 
Um, as I mentioned, we have cognitive impairments. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, we have uh, motor impairments. We're clumsier. We're likely to find ourselves in emergency getting stitches in a plaster cast. Um, right. We have cardiovascular disturbances, so our blood pressure increases. We see mood changes, both increases in anxiety and also uh, heightened depression risk. Mm -hmm. And um, we ha have much poorer coping. Um, so, you know, a lot easier to feel overwhelmed and right. not make good decisions. And we have a lot of changes in our hormones. One of them that's uh, really important to our overall health and sort of the repair of our tissues and cells is growth hormone. So we associate growth hormone with children and growing, which certainly is true, and it's absolutely uh, imperative for them. But we all need adequate amounts of growth hormone to help with this tissue repair. And we secrete uh, most, almost all of our growth hormone while we're sleeping. So if you are regularly shortchanged mm -hmm. on your sleep, the, the levels of growth hormone that are circulating for you are likely going to be insufficient. So that's another thing. And we don't regulate our, our blood sugar as well. It's almost like becoming a type two diabetic. Um, okay. This can happen quite quickly. And you may be aware that as your blood sugar levels are, are not as well controlled, you are at greater risk of infection, right? Mm -hmm. So you really want to have a, a good control over that to make sure that you're healthy and, and, and that you stay healthy. Another thing that happens too, when you're not well rested and, and these can be both acute and, and chronic consequences of, of sleep disturbance, but you don't mount a, a immune challenge as rapidly. So when we're exposed to, you know, viruses, our immune system kicks in or bacteria too, uh, it kicks in to, to sort of fight off these, these uh, viruses, right? And when you are sleep deprived, you have a very slow response. Eventually it kicks in, but it's not nearly as robust. And so you're at risk for getting sicker than you ordinarily might be. While we always want to be healthy, um, these days we are particularly aware of our circulating viruses and things going around, whether it's influenza or uh, COVID iterations, right? So, so we really need to try to put our best foot forward in terms of our health status. The other thing that happens is our circulation is not as impaired. Ordinarily, when we're is sleeping during uh, that slow wave sleep, we get a real wonderful perfusion of uh, blood to our extremities. So our fingers and toes get extra sort of good um, perfusion of blood. That really is helpful for healthy tissue. And, and again, that is not happening as well when we're not getting enough sleep. And anyone who has a pain uh, condition, whether that's a chronic, you know, arthritis, that's these kind of things, or acute, uh, acute pain from say surgery or something like that, or an injury. What we also know, and I did quite a bit of work in this area when I was a doctoral student in Seattle. So what we see is that you experience more pain for a given 
pain insult. Oh, okay. And so as a as a nurse and as a as a professor of nursing and working with my clinical colleagues, I really try to help them understand that supporting good sleep health in our patients and in our community is really really critical to offering optimal pain management as well. If you're not getting good sleep, you're feeling more pain. If you're having more pain, it, it becomes vicious cycle because then you can't sleep mm-hmm. as well. As, so mm-hmm. lots, of, lots of things that, you know, the more we learn about sleep, the more critical it is in my mind that uh, we really do our best to, to support that within our, when our, within ourselves and our, our family members and, and our community members as well. So even if we're tracking a decent number of hours sleep, I know you talked about good quality sleep, but what exactly is poor quality sleep? And, you know, how do we define that? Well, if you're finding that you're waking up several times in the night or your mm-hmm. sleep is very light, um, we, right. we call it in, in, in sleep, in the sleep field, we call it sleep fragmentation, where you're maybe, you know, sort of um, bouncing around uh, quite quite frequently and often awakening in the night now it's it's normal to waken briefly in fact we we all probably do and we probably don't even remember that we do very briefly and we fall back to sleep but where you're waking up repeatedly or sort of the depth of your sleep is not good um, you're not getting all of the the different kinds of sleep that you need so we have two major sleep states non-REM or non-rapid eye movement sleep and mm-hmm. that has um, three different stages within it, very light mm-hmm. stage one and sort of a deeper stage two and, and then slow wave sleep or stage three. And then we have the rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep, which is often associated with, with dreaming, although not exclusively. And we need both of those major sleep states to sort of help our brains, um, I think, reconfigure in a way uh, Mm -hmm. and to offer us the best outcome for our bodies physiologically. And the other thing I'll circle back to, and I meant to share in terms of when we're challenged, uh, whether we're flying across, across the ocean or visiting or doing time changes, our bodies are not just sleep and wake synchronized. We have this mechanism that helps to set our clock and and all of our internal rhythms. It really drives our hormones, body temperature, our um, levels of alertness, and so this sleep and wake rhythm, and especially the the sort of the light, helps to entrain this rhythm. And it's almost like our bodies are like orchestra. When a symphony is playing, say, Beethoven's Fifth, the musicians come in and out at a certain time, right? They're playing the same piece. They're all playing Beethoven's Fifth. But they're not playing the exact same note at the same time. And when you are flipping from night shift to day shift, or you've just flown from Spain to Toronto, mm-hmm. um, your, you know, your symphony is a little muddled. And so all of this is not coming in at the same time. There's a lot of disruption and you don't feel good. Like you don't feel yourself. 
right? And it, so it takes a few days for this entrainment to, to align again. And so it's not just our sleep and wake that is entrained, but we have a circadian rhythm that is, you know, critical and critically aligned with this biological clock called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And so it's light that helps to entrain this little bundle of nuclei and helps to really get this rhythm and this body orchestra all tuned up and playing mm. magnificently. Wow. Well, I really like that analogy. It's, 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 it's a lot more complicated than most of us think. You know, there's a lot more going on, which is really interesting to hear. So th there are many products out there that claim to assist with the improvement of sleep from melatonin to herbal remedies to prescription medication. Is there one recommendation you could make for our listeners to consider to improve the quality of their sleep? And if so, what would that be? Exercise. Exercise. It would be exercise. Simple, Simple as that. It, it it would be exercise and outside as much as possible, but exercise and at any time of the day. There's some wonderful guidelines on the participation um, website. Uh, really okay. recommend that you have a look at those and they have guidelines for all the ages, you know, from young children to older adults. Uh, and for the first time, they include sleep as one of those components oh. within the participation guidelines. So really, really helpful. We we used to think that, oh, I shouldn't do exercise because it's too close to bedtime. It's not ideal, right? Because you don't want to sort of rev up your metabolism if, if possible. But if that's the only time you can get exercise, you'll actually sleep better, more soundly, and the quality of your sleep will be better. The other thing that exercise does, and especially if you can sort of do it earlier in the day if possible, is it helps you to feel a healthy tired. And mm. so much of us, you know, we've got a lot of things going on in our day. And, and I mean, we still have a lot of challenges, whether it's economic or family issues or whatever. And exercise can be a wonderful way to sort of reduce your stressors, sort of burn off a little bit of that stress and, mm. and, and have almost like a timeout <laughs> where you're not worrying so much about all of these things, right? Well, and I imagine so much more than having a couple glasses of wine, which a lot of people say, well, it sort of calms me down and it makes me sleepy, but you're not getting the good quality of sleep, correct? No, actually, that's very true. So wine does, or alcohol can make you sleepy, but mm -hmm. unfortunately, it disturbs your REM sleep. Okay. And it also is a diuretic. So after several hours, maybe you've gone to bed, but after several hours, you may need to get up to go to the bathroom. And then by then your homeostatic drive, which is sort of your sleep pressure to, to fall asleep and stay asleep has reduced. And then you may find it hard to stay asleep. So everything in moderation, uh, right. certainly, you know, cutting back on caffeine levels, you know, getting, getting those uh, cell phones turned to silent. And, and I don't have a TV in my bedroom. I, I really try not to use my uh, computer or laptop right, right before bed, because 
if you don't screen out that blue light, it suppresses mm -hmm. melatonin. And melatonin is endogenous hormone. So it, our body normally naturally secretes that. And it will help us to fall asleep and stay asleep in the early hours. If we expose ourselves to a lot of bright lights, and particularly the blue light spectrum, it suppresses that melatonin. And so we don't have that sort of normal feeling of, of feeling sleepy it we're we're still very much alert and at least for a while that that's definitely a problem that i've been seeing in a lot of teenagers but adults as well is that mm -hmm. we use technology and tablets way too close to bedtime and we don't necessarily turn off our or have the cell phones in a different room. And so we hear these noises and beeps and tweets and whatnot that are fragmenting our sleep. Well, I think some people are using their tablets as maybe as a replacement for books. They think they're reading, they think it's making them tired when actually the blue light is doing the opposite effect. And perhaps. you can you can get apps or you can get film on top of your mm -hmm. Um, okay. your laptops or tablets and things like mm -hmm. that so there are ways to to mitigate that but to mm -hmm. be aware and when we are doing things that are you know it's one thing to to read on your uh, like a, a book or something in uh, in, in a tablet format but if we are really doing something that's very engaging or that's possibly stressful right mm -hmm. I mean you know, looking at maybe the news or something that is very alarming, or we're engaged in looking at Facebook, and it we seem to sort of get mm, almost addicted to certain platforms, right, to, to look at. It's not allowing us just to sort of slow down. And we need both a calm body and a calm mind. In order for our okay. brains to sort of flip over the switch. And if we're doing something that's very engaging or anxiety provoking, our brain is really sort of the neurons are flashing, right? And <laughs> it's, it's noisy. <laughs> and it, it doesn't allow you to fall asleep. Similarly, if you just run, I don't know, you were out running or you were uh, playing hockey or something late, your your blood pressure's high, your heart rate's high, respiratory rate's high, you won't fall asleep right away. Good to know to be outside, get it done a little earlier on in the day so that your body has time to adjust. Right. Well, Dr. McMillan, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today. I'm sure our listeners will be very grateful to put some of your tips into practice. And I think we'll all agree that here's to a good night's sleep. Well, you're you're very welcome. I, I just hope that we can all take a pause and think about how important our sleep is and how, you know, we're worth it. We're worth it to try to make that a priority because if we can get a good night's sleep, if we can support our families or, or community members to get a better sleep, we will all function better. Um, we'll learn better, we'll play safer, we'll think more effectively, and um, it makes for a great day. So thank you again. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today, Dr. McMillan. We will all be the better sleepers as a result. The quest to get a good night's sleep is not limited to any one culture, but it is a worldwide phenomenon. A 2018 sleep study found that the average night's sleep for people over 25 was 6.9 hours. And this is people from many countries, including Argentina, China, Colombia, the U.S., and the U.K., among others. 
you probably wouldn't be surprised to hear what the two main issues are that are keeping people from getting an eight hours sleep. And that would be stress mm. and money issues. Yep. Every culture seems to have different sleep customs and their own take on how to squeeze in a few more winks. There are different rituals to help with winding down before sleeping and even specific sleep aids to help with achieving a better night of shut eye. Traditionally, afternoon naps known as a siesta in Spain or a reposo in Italy have allowed people of these countries the opportunity to recharge their batteries mid-afternoon. Now, historians believe that these afternoon naps may have originated and gained popularity among farming communities in warmer climates. Yeah, well, that makes total sense because the, the afternoon in those climates is quite hot. So you take a little cool break. I love the siesta personally, but I hear it's not that common in cities anymore. You're absolutely correct. I read that it's considered more of a luxury now right. um, than in an everyday ritual. And today it's more common in rural areas, in, particularly in southern Italy. I've read the northerners consider it a waste of time. I don't Ooh. know if this is true or not, and I wouldn't be telling the southerners that. But Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think the siesta now is just more of a prolonged lunch mm. in some of these places. It used to be that businesses fully closed. You couldn't go anywhere to shop. People went home to eat and chill out with their families, have a little snooze, maybe a little wine before tackling that second half of the day when it was a little bit more cool and mm. more comfortable. So it sounds like a great idea to me. Yeah, well, China and Japan are pro-nap too. Did you know that? I did, actually. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> China, in China, it's uh, so common to take a nap at work that even some workplaces have a dedicated nap room. In Japan, there's a type of nap called, now I have to get this right, Inemuri. Right. Yeah, it means sleep sleeping while present and one isn't fully asleep but somewhat dozing hmm. the people of japan are known for achieving the least amount of sleep primarily because they're known for having long work days and in the case of students staying up too late to study right those who sleep in public are perceived positively though they're not slackers they're seen as hard workers hmm. they're actually rules of etiquette associated with this very acceptable act of taking part of an enumeri in public on trains, they use their rolled-up bag to cushion their head as opposed to sleeping on somebody's shoulder. And at work or in the library, you're supposed to rest your head on the desk. Oh, I've been practicing Enemuri for <laughs> ages then, especially when studying. Yeah, when we were in Tokyo, it was really common to see people napping on benches hmm. and in transit. And I didn't actually think much of it because you do see it in North America, but maybe not to the same extent. I think it's actually quite civilized to embrace the nap and to view it as a result of hard work as opposed to how we see it mm -hmm. in in more western culture you know as a symbol of laziness or slacking off right right another common tradition in mexico where the siesta is observed is prayer before bed mm. it plays an important role in their pre-sleep rituals as 83 percent of the country is catholic there are many forms of before-bed prayer, though. There are non-spiritual prayers for sleep and, of course, sacred sleep rituals. There are Hindu sleep mantras, Buddhist meditations, dua for sleep in Islam, and Christian prayers. All are believed to have a positive impact on our sleep quality. Well, that makes sense to me. It calms the mind, right? It, it calms those worries that you mentioned before, like mm -hmm. stress, money, or health, whatever it is, that can interfere with your sleep. I actually often fall asleep when I'm meant to be 
meditating, it's not actually a great thing when you're in a meditation class. I've done that in a meditation course and I was the only one sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> and and the teacher said, looks like the course is working better for some more than others. <laughs> <laughs> they really need a bell or something or one of those gongs. I did to- not yell though. Okay. Well, that's good because you really would have messed it up for everybody else who were finding their zen. I'm working on that. But you do know that meditation app, Calm? Yes. So they have, I do their meditations, but they also have sleep stories and I absolutely love them. So the sleep stories that I really like, they take you on little adventures, like on this railway adventure over these hills, all around journeys. Yeah, they're so good. And it's always somebody with this like really amazing voice, you know, just lulling you to sleep. I've never reached the end of a sleep story. I always fall asleep. So they are effective. Oh, you're getting your full value then. I am. I love that app. Honestly, I love it. (laughs) And I've also adopted another little ritual from... Guatemalan culture. Have you ever heard of worry dolls? Yes. I received some of those in my stocking when I was a child. I was uh, a big worrier. Right. And I suppose, I imagine Santa thought it would be some comfort to me to have these in my stocking. Yeah. I learned that it's common though for children in Guatemala to sleep with these tiny dolls. And when I say tiny, they're super tiny. Mine were no longer than two centimeters long and they had little bits of fabric that were wrapped tightly with thread. Mm -hmm. And children are supposed to tell the dolls their worries and then place them under their pillow. In my case, I had a a tiny little box that I kept in my nightstand. It came, the dolls came in there and you're supposed to tell your worry and put them back into the little box. Right. And so doing so helps avoid bad dreams. The dolls are believed to hold on to the worries on behalf of children and before you put them under your pillow, you're supposed to rub the bellies of the doll just in case the tummies of the dolls are sore from holding on to your worry. Oh, that's so cute. I didn't know that. Uh, I love my worry dolls. I love them so much that I pass them along to my daughter too. Mm. And I, I think it just helps clear your mind before you go to sleep. Put your worries in somebody else's hands. I completely agree. Now, I did not know about rubbing the belly bit. So hopefully my dolls, after all these years, didn't suffer too much from sore tummies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they may have some very sore tummies right now. Yours and mine both. I guess telling the doll what's on your mind is like a form of confession or even prayer. Exactly. We have a tradition among the indigenous people of North America, too, that is said to help protect against bad dreams, the dream catcher. Right. For those of our listeners who do not know what a dream catcher is, it is a circular ring that has handcrafted webbing in the middle. The outside ring is decorated often with leather and string and feathers and beads, and you hang the dream catcher over where you sleep. These charms are hung above the bed to catch the bad dreams and other harm that might be present. And the web is supposed to absorb bad dreams at night and discharge them during the day. The feathers, on the other hand, act as this ladder, allowing good dreams to descend on the child or adult who's sleeping. And it's believed that the bad dreams get caught in the webbing, allowing the sleeper to enjoy peaceful dreams. From time to time, you're supposed to shake them out, shake out any bad dreams that could be caught in the webbing, and doing so uh, frees up space within the webbing for other bad dreams to be caught. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have dream catchers in all of our bedrooms. My children have them. Yeah, they're very, they're very beautiful. They're works of art, really, of the indigenous peoples. And I think they act as a bit of a reassurance that you can sleep free of nightmares and free of fear and worry. We also have beaded spiders 
that are hanging in the webs of our dream catchers. And apparently the Ojibwe regard the spider as a creature that symbolizes protection and comfort. So two ingredients for a good sleep. Oh, I like that. Do you know what else is a good ingredient for good sleep? Whiskey. (laughs) Yes. Your own blankets. In many countries, it's common for people to sleep with their own personal duvet instead of sharing one. It is. And at first, when I encountered this around the world, I thought somebody just didn't know how to make a bed. <laughs> but it's it's very, very common. And I'm a huge, huge fan. And let's go beyond the blankets. What about people having their own beds, you know, in a partnership? Apparently, until the 1950s, it was considered unhealthy and old-fashioned to share a bed with your partner. Though I love my guy, his snoring can sometimes have me wishing for my own bedroom, let alone my own bed. <laughs> I know. I love the idea of two separate blankets. No more mm-hmm. freezing all night long because one person is hogging the covers. And it offers the opportunity, really, for one blanket to be heavier and one to be lighter so yeah. that one person doesn't get too hot and the other one doesn't get too cold. Yeah. Now, speaking of temperature regulation, have you heard of fan death? Fan death? No. Yeah. Well, in South Korea, there's a belief that sleeping with a fan running in an enclosed room can cause death. And apparently it has something to do with the circulation of stale air. And some fans are even sold with warning labels about fan death. Mm. This urban myth is believed to have started in the 1920s, but still persists today. That's crazy. I bet a lot of households in Korea have central air then. You might be right about that. Yeah. (laughs) There are a lot of interesting beliefs out there that impact how people sleep. For example, the practice of feng shui, which is the study of interaction of energy between people and objects in their environment. It's a belief that you should not sleep with your feet facing the door or your head facing north. Hmm. The fact that people are generally carried out feet first after death likely is the origin of this belief. It's apparently bad for your health and relaxation as well. Yeah. Hmm. You should never also sleep with a mirror near your bed either. Apparently your soul leaves your body when sleeping and the reflection of the mirror could frighten or confuse it. You don't want that. No. It's also believed that mirrors draw energy and contribute to insomnia. So you don't want that either. There's so much to consider. No kidding. eh? (laughs) I think I need a feng shui expert in my bedroom because after what you've said, I think I've got all of those things wrong. Maybe that's what my problem is. Well, you never know. You never know. (laughs) Sleep is such an integral part of the human condition, a necessary activity to ensure health and high functioning, though we are the only species to actively delay or postpone sleep. When we do so, we are missing the opportunity to rejuvenate our bodies, to rest and recover, and to bring our best selves to the following day. Human beings have developed ritual, prayers, mantras, and now even wearable trackers and apps to help us achieve a better quality sleep. But we really only need nature, light, and exercise to create better sleep habits. So put those screens on slumber. Turn the lights down low. It's time to drift off to dreamland. Thank you for joining us at Home and Abroad with your hosts, Harrison Walker. Follow us each week as we continue the conversation. <laughs>